There we go. Well, our scripture reading, 1 Corinthians, surprise. It's hiding from me today. All right, 1 Corinthians chapter 10. This is verses 23 and then through 11, verse 1. All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you're disposed to go, eat whatever's set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it for the sake of the one who informs you and for the sake of conscience. I do not mean your conscience, but his. For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness... Why am I denounced because of that for which I give thanks? So, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many that they may be saved. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. It's God's Word. Amen. Children, you are dismissed. Run fast, Rocco. Well, we live in a pluralistic society, a country where one is free to worship or not worship as one pleases. So you can live life for the glory of God, for the glory of Jesus, for the next politician or for food or exercise, self-expression or Allah, and all are free to do so. Because of that, There are challenges for Christians. There are dangers of falling into practices that are approved by the culture, but not the way of following Christ. There are pressures to conform to standards that are set by people and not by Scripture. So syncretism, remember that fancy word? Syncretism is the fusion of different beliefs, different belief systems, practices, is something that we are all prone to. We have a tendency to take the parts of the Bible we like and discard parts that aren't acceptable in our world. We fashion little Jesuses in our image, creating consumeristic Jesuses with the accessories we like and we kind of shape them into our own image. And the Apostle Paul was confronted with similar 
issues, though they would have been in the ancient world and not in the modern world. And in a world of paganism, of many gods like we've been talking about, in a world of Roman rule. And the answer that he gave in that kind of world was not Christian nationalism, but it was creating communities within pagan cities that live like Jesus is the one and only King. He was after churches, believers, a group of people that would believe and confess and live like Jesus was actually King. And so Christians flee idolatry. They flee syncretism, synchronizing beliefs and practices that are not in accord with what Jesus has said. Christians live for the glory of one God. We live with sacrificial love of others that trumps self-love and self-rule. So that's what Paul is after in Corinth. And of course, that's what the Holy Spirit through the Apostle Paul is after in our own hearts that we would live in that way. So again, let's set the stage. Let's set the context of what we've been dealing with. This is kind of the conclusion of a, of a particular section that Paul has been dealing with in his letter. And if you remember, as we've kind of gone back, I always like to do this, chapters 5, 6, and 7, we're dealing with a culture involved in porneia, a culture involved in sexual immorality. And he was just confronting that issue over and over again and saying, hey, you have to flee that. He said that in chapter 6, verse 18. Flee porneia. Flee sexual immorality. Don't live like that. Don't do that with your body. Even though everybody in the culture is cool with it, you are to run from it. You are to flee of it. You live a different kind of life. You are to be a different kind of person. And in 8, 9, and 10, in these chapters, he's been dealing with the issue of idolatry. And what does he say? In chapter 10, verse 14, he says, flee idolatry. Again, run from it. It's got to be far from you. Get away from all forms of idolatry. The culture is, is infested with it. It's everywhere. The temples are on every street corner or whatever. Um, but you've got to run from it. We are not to be those kinds of people. And so again, that's where we're at. It's him outlining this issue of idolatry in the culture and him trying to, well, how do you live in a culture like that? Which things do you run and turn from all the way and then what might there be other issues of maybe wisdom and practical? How do we deal with this, that, and the other thing? And so he's dealing with this issue of idolatry. And what's interesting is these two things were kind of conflated at times. They were kind of conflated in the same issues. One writer said this, Paul's reason for associating idle food, temples, and porneia, sexual immorality, is that on some occasions in the temple precincts, part of the entertainment was likely sexual. And then I would suggest that this is also what the apostolic decree of Acts 15 is concerned with. Remember, that was in when they were trying to figure out, okay, Jews and Gentiles, how do we work all this together? What do Gentiles have to do and what don't they have to do? And some of the things that were included in that decree, you can't be involved in sexual immorality nor food sacrifice to idols. So back to him. I would suggest that this is also what the apostolic decree of Acts 15 is concerned with. And such, Paul is happy to implement the decree in Corinth and elsewhere. Gentiles are to avoid going to temples where they would get idle food and properly sacrificed meat with the blood in it and porneia. 
It also explains the association of prohibitions against idle food and pornea in texts like Revelation 2.14. So, this was a very common understanding. There were letters that were sent out to various communities. Paul is writing a letter here. So, these would be two big issues that they face in their world. And he's saying, it's prohibited. You can't do it. You can't participate in idle food and you can't participate in pornea. There's something else interesting in this passage because it, it sounds like that a word for idle food was actually potentially a made-up word, maybe even by Paul. Because he's trying to separate what's just sacred food and then what is idle food. Here's the same person. This is what they said. And I'm not going to say the word because I'm going to butcher it. But this Greek word for idle food, which is all over these chapters. It's in 8.1, verse 4, verse 7, verse 10. It's in chapter 10, verse 19. This word is not a pagan term since pagans would hardly call their gods idols. It's rather a polemical term that arose in early Christianity for the sacred food eaten in pagan temple precincts after a sacrifice. And then it's not to be confused with temple food or sacred food, another term that Paul would use, which Paul uses a food that comes from the temples but is bought in the market and eaten at home. So there's kind of two different types of words that he's using throughout these passages, usually speaking of idle food. And so what we find in this is Paul says no to this idle food, but then he says, yeah, it's okay. If you're eating very similar foods that might have been used that way or might not have been used that way, that's all right. And so throughout this chapter, he's been dealing with no idle food, but hey, in the marketplace, when you don't really know for sure, that might be okay. And in home with an unbeliever, that might be okay. So that's kind of the, the grid that we are working with here, which just, just reminds us of how in life we'll get a no, we'll read a no in the Scriptures, but then sometimes it's like, well, what about this situation? What about that situation? And trying to figure out the context. And that's part of the wrestling of what we do as Christians. And that's some of what Paul is doing here. He's dealing with real people in a real city with real sin and various issues. And when do you exercise wisdom? And when do you say no? And when do you say yes? And all that. So very normal. Just like we have questions about in our culture that we have to ask. What does the Bible say? So that's what he is doing here. So he's kind of concluding this issue of idle food. So verse 23. All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. And so here again, we have the heart of Paul. And we have these kind of slogans, these bumper stickers of liberty, if you will, in the community that are being said. We've seen that throughout this letter. He kind of puts things in quotation marks. And then sometimes we have parts that may not be in quotation marks, but may still be him interacting with what the people are saying to him. And so he's using some of these slogans here. All things are lawful. And then again, all things are lawful. But he says two things. Not all things are helpful. Not all things build up. And so, for the Christian, the goal of our community, Redwood Christian Fellowship, the goal is that we be people that aren't just focused, aren't just focused on law-keeping. Aren't just focused on, well, I'm going to do whatever is lawful. He actually calls you to something higher than just the slogan, than just the law script out in front of you. And he's saying it's an issue of the heart. He's saying the Christian is not merely trying to seek lawfulness, but building up. 
So, again, I've been kind of doing this a lot lately, and I'll do it again throughout this sermon. Like To treat it like a math problem, strengthening others is greater than individualistic law-keeping. So the goal for our relationships is that we would be strengthening, that we would build people up like a strong building. It's not just you as an individual and which thing do I do and not do and, wow, how far can I go or how far can't I go? The issue isn't like the law-keeping and being scrupulous and all that. The issue is, are you strengthening other people? That is the heart, not just the what can I do and what can't I do. So he's, he's just operating according to a whole different thing than sometimes we can operate under. We are not just trying to follow the law and all perfection, but we are also trying to do things with our life that build other people up. Christianity is about love, of course. That should be what we know. But man, it can be easy to be like, well, hey, I can do what I want. All things are lawful. It's about me and what I want. He's like, eh, we need to go by a different, a different operating system, the operating system of, of love. So verse 24, let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. So again, math problem. Neighbor's good is greater than self-good. Do you live that way? Is that what you believe? Is that how you kind of guide your life? Neighbor's good, other people greater than self-good. And I think sometimes for me, the answer is no. I like it when I'm happy. And I don't want other people to arrange their happiness around mine. I want to be happy. I want what's best for my good. One commentator said, the much admired civic and personal benefactions in the patronage system of secular Corinth did not have the primary aim of meeting the needs of others. Well, neither do we. <laughs> neither, does, neither do Americans. It's not always the primary aim. And then he goes on, personal advancement came first and any benefits to others were merely secondary. The radical Christian ethic is spelled out in terms of the good of others and never personal advancement. The Corinthians who insisted on their own right to eat in the idol temple, regardless of the needs of other Christians, had failed to love their neighbor by putting his or her needs first. So, neighbor's good greater than self-good. And then, another one, sacrificial love greater than personal freedom. Sacrificial love for the Christian is a higher priority than personal freedom. And we've seen this ever. We've seen this the whole way that Paul gave that argument for why he was a tent maker, why he was with the lowly class, why he wasn't just chilling with all the rich people and making them happy, but of why he did that. And of course, it was to build them up and to see that they were saved. He was after the salvation of people. And so sacrificial love is greater than personal freedom. Here's a quote from Ben Witherington. For Paul, freedom is not the first and fundamental cry, which then is crimped or limited by love. Rather, love is the fundamental thing, and it indicates how one's power ought to be used. A Christian's power and authority are to be expressed in and by love. So again, freedom is not the first and fundamental cry which then is crimped or limited by love. 
But love is the cry of the Christian. And that's how Paul is operating and that's how he calls us to operate, to live. So let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Verse 25, Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. Hmm. So now he's back to freedom. Eat whatever you want. If it's in the meat market, eat whatever you want. Don't be overly scrupulous about where it may or may not have been. And meat markets of that day would have had a mix, likely, of idolatrous food and non-idolatrous food. When you go to the store, when you go out to the marketplace, there's going to be a mix there. So some Christians might have been thinking, oh, well, we've got to stay away from all of that. You know, the good law-keeping Christians. And we just want to be as far as we possibly can not to eat that meat. And Paul's like, hey, there's some freedom here. Eat whatever you want in the meat market. And so it's interesting how Paul is strict on idolatry. He prohibits it. I mean, it's flee. Like you cannot, he's been saying that in this chapter 10. You can't be mixing the cup of demons with the cup of Christ. I mean, there's no funny business. It is strict. But, this other spot, but it isn't just, there's something else going on here. There's a, there's a flexibility, though, about the way you might live in life. He's not so concerned that if somehow some idol meat might get inside your body, that then somehow you're corrupted by demons. Okay? So he's saying, hey, don't be too scrupulous. There's freedom. Don't live with a tyrant conscience. N.T. Wright said, In the marketplace, all is permitted. Once off the idol's turf, the food reverts to the sphere of the God who made it. But to enter an idol's temple and eat there alongside those who are actually intending to share fellowship with this non-God, this handmade pseudo-God, this is to invite created powers to have an authority over one which they do not possess, a power which belongs only to the Creator God revealed in and through Jesus the Messiah. It was like, hey, when it comes to their turf, where they are practicing worship, where they're giving their bodies and both what they're consuming, possibly even sexual immorality, out of worship to these false gods, that can be interacting with demons, with demonic entities. There is no way that a Christian should be involved with that. Absolutely clear. But hey, if that meat comes out of that situation, out of that context and goes over here in the marketplace and we don't know whether it is or it isn't, go ahead. You're free. That's what he's saying. And then, Paul gives his reason, his justification for this. Verse 26, the justification for verse 25. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. There's quotation marks around that. Why? Because that comes from the Old Testament. Again, we see Paul bringing the Old Testament into his New Testament ethic. So again, do you do that? Do you read the whole Bible to figure out how to live your life or do you just stick with kind of this back part of it? That's not what Paul did. Paul said, huh, okay, I've got to think about this. What did the Scriptures say? Goes, grabs his Old Testament and looks at it. Psalms, that's where I'm going to go. Psalms, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Psalm 24, 1. So we find an Old Testament justification for a New Testament practice. He doesn't make up his ethics out of thin air. He's Bible all the way through. That's how Paul 
lives his life. Again, do you? Do we? Is that how you define the way that you live? And there's another thing interesting in this of why. Why would he go there? Why for that psalm for this particular issue? One should say, this is another commentator, Paul says, buy and eat whatever is sold in the market without inquiring because of conscience. Inquiring because of conscience is precisely what a Jew would do. And this shows how far Paul had come from his days as a zealous Pharisee. He no longer felt it necessary to keep kosher since all creatures and thus all meat are the Lord's and thus one may freely share in it. There may be some irony in Paul's use of Psalm 24.1 here since this passage was used by the rabbis to argue that one must say the blessing over each meal. A blessing that they would say only over kosher food. Even in verse 25, Paul is not addressing the weak but the strong as he's done throughout the whole argument in chapters 8-10. through The strong are those who would be inquiring so that they might demonstrate the extent of their freedom and their moral awareness that food is food and idols are nothing. So he's probably, again, he's thinking about the culture, thinking about what even they would do as, especially to to the Jewish people, that they probably would be saying that blessing over kosher food, not this kind of food. And Paul's just saying, hey, guess what? That verse, you get to eat the meat. So Psalm 24. I just wanted to read that. I found it. Interesting to kind of go, okay, well, this, this is where Paul goes. What does it say? The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. This is, I'm going to read out of the NIV. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. For he founded it on the seas and established it on the waters. So this is God's world. Everything in it is yours. Verse 3, Who may ascend the mountain of the Lord? Who may stand in His holy place? Okay, so now he's moved to everything is God's to holiness. Verse 4, the one who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not trust in an idol or swear by a false god. thought, interesting. So Paul, again, he's dealing with idolatry. He's got this issue going on with the rabbis and what they may do with how they say their prayers. And then he's got this issue of idolatry in here. So again, he's not just, when he's quoting these things, he's sometimes reading the whole passage. We may just get one verse. And here this verse is also dealing with idolatry. The earth is God's. And he goes on how, you know, lift up your gates. Um, the King of glory may come in. The Lord strong and mighty. The King of glory. What's another term we find out later in this Scripture? Glory comes up. So it's so interesting. The one who has clean hands, a pure heart, doesn't swear by false gods, does not participate in idolatry. And some would have pushed that so far maybe to not let people have this kind of freedom. But Paul is using it to say, oh no, no to idolatry, but also there's a whole lot of freedom here. The whole earth is the Lord's. <clears throat> so, when you're out at the marketplace, don't raise any question on the ground of conscience. Don't sit there all concerned and freaked out. It's a good moralistic person. Just get your food and go eat it. It's God's. It's all, it's all his. Verse 27, the next issue. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you're disposed to go, eat whatever set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. So there that is again, the same phrase. Okay, don't freak out again. It's going to be okay. Go to your unbeliever's house and enjoy the food. So eat with unbelievers. It's okay. Go to your meat market, get your food, gather it, It's all good. 
You want to go have dinner with the unbelievers around you? It's not, oh, avoid them. Don't hang out with them. No, it's eat with them. Eat, whatever's, eat whatever they put before you. So freedom. There's prohibition here, but there's also a whole lot of freedom. Again, that would be striking because of Exodus 34. So let's go to the Old Testament here. Exodus 34, 10 to 17. And he said, Behold, I'm making a covenant. Before all your people I will do marvels such as have not been created in all the earth or in any nation. And all the people among whom you are shall see the work of the Lord, for it is an awesome thing that I will do with you. Observe what I command you this day. Behold, I will drive out before you the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. So, God's covenant people, you're my people, you're mine, you're going to go into those other nations, you're going to drive out the pagan nations involved in all kinds of pagan practices. Verse 12, Take care lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land to which you go, lest it become a snare in your midst. You shall tear down their altars and break their pillars and cut down their ashram. It's like, hey, you go in there and you destroy all of the idolatry. Get rid of it. Four, you shall worship no other God for the Lord whose name is Jealous is a jealous God. Lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land and when they whore after their gods and sacrifice to their gods and you are invited, you eat of His sacrifice. Hmm. Sound familiar? And you take of their daughters for your sons and their daughters who whore after their gods and make your sons whore after their gods. You shall not make for yourself any gods of cast metal. So, one of the main issues, again, you flee idolatry. You get rid of idolatry. You do not engage in those practices. Because, hey, if you, know, if you start marrying all of them and if you start becoming like them and eating of their sacrifices, you begin to worship a false god. And God has zero patience for idolatry. He is God and there is no other. You shall have no other gods before me. God is very clear. I am and I alone am to be worshipped. You're not to participate in these sacrifices. That's a reason why Paul wouldn't. But some would probably say, okay, well, hey, well, we can't even go to the unbeliever's house. So, so, if we can, so if we're supposed to go drive them out, how can I go have dinner with them? Well, we can. There's freedom because we want them to know Jesus. We can enjoy Dinner with unbelievers. Why? Jesus. We imitate what Jesus did. Remember, Jesus got in trouble with those who might have taken a text like that and certain things to say, oh, you just stay away from it all. You just kind of live your holy life apart from everybody and you don't want to be stained by anything, so just kind of stay in your house and don't interact with the unbelievers out there. And Paul is like, nope, you eat with unbelievers. That's what Jesus did. And remember, religious people got upset at him. Mark chapter 2, 13 to 17. Mark 2, 13 to 17. He went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, Follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. So, 
eat with unbelievers. Do it. Eat whatever they place before you. Enjoy that freedom. Love those people. Be like your Savior. That's what Paul is all after this whole thing. Imitate Him. And go and do that. So, don't participate in their sacrifices. Don't endorse the sinful celebrations. You don't go down to the temple and participate and eat and all that. But hey, if you're in the house, it's fine. Go for it. So again, you see a, yes, go for it. Then you see a, but don't do that over there. But, verse 28, if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it. For the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. So, if you find out if somebody at the dinner party says, hey, this is idol food, you're not supposed to eat it. You're not supposed to eat it. So don't try to figure it out before there's freedom. Don't make a big deal. Don't try to do a giant audit of all the food. Just chill out. But if somebody brings it up, then don't do it. Why? Hmm. Why? Well, the commentators try to offer a bunch of different questions. Of, you know, who's, who might that be? Is it a Christian? Is it the pagan host? Who in the world is it? But from what I saw, it seems like the main issue is that eating idle food would be considered compromise and would mar one's witness. Because you're a Christian. You worship King Jesus. You worship the one Lord, the one God, the maker of heaven and earth, who sent His Son to save sinners. So, to mix it with pagan practices in the worship of a false god sends a signal that, Oh, it's no big deal. God's kind of cool with other gods and other things like that. We can kind of mix mix and match here. It's not that big of a deal. And he, again, is, no, that, that, that it would mar one's witness. One writer gave some reasons here which pretty much boil down to that. But the first one, he says, it would compromise their confession of the one God with a tacit recognition of the sanctity of pagan gods. Number two, it would confirm rather than challenge the unbeliever's idolatrous convictions and would not lead the unbeliever away from the worship of false gods. Like, oh, the unbeliever might be like, oh, okay, oh, well, this is no big deal. I can still go do my pagan practices and it's fine. That that Christian's cool with it. Back to him. If a Christian were to eat what a pagan acquaintance regards as an offering to a deity, it signals the Christian's tacit endorsement of idolatry. Number three, it would disable the basic Christian censure of pagan gods as false gods that embody something demonic and make that censure appear hypocritical. And then the commentator goes on, the announcement presents an opportunity to expound one's faith in one God and one Lord. So if somebody at the dinner party says, hey, stop eating, and maybe that's an opportunity to say why. Because I believe in one God, the maker of heaven and earth. I believe in his only son that came down to save sinners. I will not participate in in pagan idolatrous worship. So an opportunity to bring witness. Verse 29 to 30, and this part's tough, I don't really know. (laughs) This is one of those, I do not mean your conscience, but his, for why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of that for which I give thanks? There's several different ways to go here about kind of who is talking here. 
Is this Paul confronting the objections of, of the strong? That so when he is writing these reasons, it's kind of like the way the strong would talk? Why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? Again, it's all about liberty. It's not about love. If I partake with thankfulness, if I'm saying, hey, this is God's, the earth is the Lord, the fullness thereof, man, this is full, I'm good, this tastes great. I'm just worshiping God here, grateful for this wonderful meat. Um, but I'm denounced for that for which I give thanks? Ridiculous. So it could kind of be him kind of confronting that to remind them, actually, we've got to think about other people here. We've got to think about our witness here. Or it could be, again, just, just Paul, you know, defending some of his own freedom here and just making it clear that we can, with gratefulness, eat freely. Verse 31. Kind of the classic. The classic verse that everybody rips out of the context. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. There it is. Famous verse. The priority of the Christian to do everything from eating and drinking to the glory of God. And this is the last little section here of verse 31 through 11.1. I kind of decided to kind of write, how would this sound now? Because the way that Paul talks in this set of verses to follow here is not a therapeutic Paul. So how would somebody maybe write this now? So, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to express who you are. Don't worry about what other people think to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God. Just as I try to honor myself in everything I do, seeking my own fulfillment, that of myself, that I may be fulfilled and free. Find yourself too as I seek to express myself. And so we may kind of have that type of language, therapeutic language. And again, I'm not against therapy at all. But when the inward self is elevated above everything else, you are cutting against the very core of Christianity. Period. End of story. And Paul does not sound like what I just read. (laughs) That is like opposite to everything that Paul is saying in every way that Paul is operating here. He is not just about self-expression and internal freedom from all other constraints. One of my favorite pastors, Martin Lloyd-Jones, was a pastor way back in the day. A Welsh guy. And you can find interviews. There's television interviews with him, actually. There's one in 1970, which I thought this was very appropriate. The interviewer, a Joan Bakewell, said this to him. You can actually look this up on YouTube. Isn't this need for an authoritative line, whatever it might be, in conflict with the other trend in man's development, which is for self-expression, fulfillment, self-realization, which you actually disapprove of? That's the question to Martin Lloyd-Jones. That's in the 70s. 
And he's, in the context, he's talking about sin and things like that. We don't really need to deal with that anymore. You know, isn't this need for this authoritative line, whatever it might be in conflict with the other trend in man's development, which is for self-expression, fulfillment, self-realization, which you actually disapprove of? And this is what the doctor says. Well, yes, of course I do, because man as he is, and he sounds way better than me because he's Welsh, so he kind of gets that accent in there. It sounds more authoritative. Well, yes, of course I do, because man as he is, the more he expresses himself, the worse things become. If each man is autonomous and is to express himself or herself, you're bound to get conflict, aren't you? If each one of us is a god and I determine I do what I think is right, well, you think differently. Well, there's a clash immediately and you get chaos. You see, we must both, we must submit ourselves to God. We've got an authority outside of ourselves and we have a motive and a reason and a purpose. You see, when people deny this, you must get chaos and you've got it. This is the tragedy. Sounds like our world. So you get conflict if you're just self, seeking self-expression, and your highest goal is just to go inward and satisfy yourself in the way that you think, the way that you live, and everything else. You're going to get conflict with other people. And Paul is saying, that is not how the Christian lives. They do all things for the glory of God. They look outside of themselves to something else, to a much higher purpose. So the point of life, what does the catechism say? You know, the the chief end of man, the purpose, meaning, meaning will not be found within. And we see that lesson all around us. But meaning has to be found without, out and above in the glory of God. And so his goal is to glorify God. Whatever you eat, whatever you drink, do all to the glory of God. That's the goal. Verse 32, Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God. Again, this offense is not just you, you got your feelings hurt. Okay, That is not what this offense is. So it's not you're just living by every single other person's feelings and what they think and that's dictating your life. That's not what Paul is saying. Uh, we, are, we are people that can have our own agency and all of that. But our, our attitude is, is different. Our attitude is different. So we don't just live by the feelings of, of others. Gordon Fee, a commentator, said, To give offense, therefore, does not so much mean to hurt someone's feelings as to behave in such a way as to prevent someone else from hearing the gospel or to alienate someone who's already a brother or a sister. So that's what he's talking about. We're not going to alienate our brothers and sisters. We're not going to put blocks in the way of people's salvation. That's the way we interact with food. It's about witness and it's about other people. Verse 33, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. So there it is, his goal, the the glorification of God and the salvation of humanity and all different types and all different identity forms and community groups, um, trying to do all that each one of those groups may come to know Jesus. That is the way Paul lives salvation of other people the last verse and this is the unfortunate chapter break 
Um, you know, you can actually find Bibles that don't have chapters and verses in them. It's pretty interesting. It definitely makes you, makes you read it differently. You kind of get trained by where the breaks are. Well, I'm done with my chapter for the day, so I don't need to read the next verse kind of thing. Because it's a letter. didn't have chapters and verses in there. So this is a, kind of a bad one. He says, Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. And that's been the whole thing. He did that in chapter 9 about his freedom and why he made the decisions he did. And so this is kind of the, the, the final point. Imitate me, not just because it's about me. He's not just being self-centered. But imitate me as I follow Christ. Christ is the one that we imitate. And again, I was thinking about we as, as human beings are meant to be imitators. We are meant to imitate, to glorify. We model people. Children model their parents for good or for bad. They model older siblings when you watch them play and do what the older siblings want. You know, we model, you know, our kids have been into basketball lately, or LeBron James or Michael Jordan dunks, or you're modeling and playing and you imitate, you glorify these other heroes, these other individuals higher than you. And you're meant to do that. You're not just meant to sit inside and look inward. You're meant to look outward. Meaning gets lost because the self caves in on itself. But we are meant for imitation. We are meant to imitate Christ. We are meant to model Him and to see His glory. And that that's actually where meaning and satisfaction and joy is found. Not just in me and my personal freedom, but in a focus on something outside of you. And Christianity is pointing to what that thing is that you are made to imitate, to know, to glorify and magnify Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so, those things are not at odds. C.S. Lewis, when talking about this, well, wait a second, glorifying God kind of sounds boring or just a duty. And Lewis put it this way, The most obvious fact about praise, whether of God or anything, strangely escaped me. I thought of it in terms of compliment, approval, or the giving of honor. I'd never noticed that all enjoyment spontaneously overflows into praise, unless shyness or the fear of boring others is deliberately brought in to check it. The world rings with praise, lovers praising their mistresses, readers their favorite poet, walkers praising the countryside, players praising their favorite game, praise of weather, wines, dishes, actors, motors, horses, Colleges, countries, historical personages, children, flowers, mountains, rare stamps, rare beetles, even sometimes politicians or scholars. I'd not noticed how the humblest and at the same time the most balanced and capacious minds praised most, while the cranks, misfits, and malcontents praised least, except where intolerably adverse circumstances interfere, praise almost seems to be inner health made audible. I had not noticed either that just as men spontaneously praise whatever they value, so they spontaneously urge us to join them in praising it. Isn't she lovely? Wasn't it glorious? Don't you think that magnificent? The psalmists, in telling everyone to praise God, are doing what all men do when they speak of what they care about. My whole more general difficulty about, about the praise of God depended on my absurdity denying to us as regards the supremely valuable what we delight to do, what we indeed can't help doing about everything else we value. I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment. It is its appointed consummation. 
It's not out of compliment that lovers keep on telling one another how beautiful they are. The delight is incomplete till it is expressed. If it were possible for a created soul fully to appreciate, that is to love and delight in the worthiest object of all and simultaneously at every moment to give this delight perfect expression, then that soul would be in supreme beatitude. The Scotch Catechism says that man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. But we shall then know that these are the same thing. Fully to enjoy is to glorify. In commanding us to glorify Him, God is inviting us to enjoy Him. So we were made to glorify. And not just because it's a duty to grip and get done before God, but because your soul at its most healthy, at its most delightful, its most happy, is when it glorifies something else. It could be a bad thing, which is why people worship false gods all the time. But it can also be a good thing, the highest good to worship and glorify God can be for your own enjoyment because that is what you were made to do. And so Paul calls us to glorify Jesus and to live the kind of life that will glorify Him in the nitty-gritty like eating and drinking and in how we make decisions. Does it glorify God? What does the Bible say? And which parts are we flexible on? There's a lot of flexibility. There's a lot of freedom. Don't be a morose jerk. But there's also a sense of, but we honor what he has said. Flee sexual immorality. Flee idolatry. Why? Because I'm pursuing something higher and something greater. I'm pursuing the glory of God. And I live a life that shows that I can actually enjoy Him in the way that He has designed life to be. And that is where the joy is found. So, we eat and we drink. So Christianity does. That's what we do every week. We celebrate a meal which shows us what Christ has done. It shows us who we are called to imitate. And He says, hey... All of you sexually immoral, which is all of you, and all of you idolaters, which likes to trade really bad things and make them idols and really good things and make them idols, all of you are welcome. Repent of your sin, turn from, your, turn from inside of yourself, and come take me in. Take my body, take my blood as the true satisfaction of your life. And reject the other meals of the world and come celebrate what I have done. And so that's what he is calling us to do. And that's what we will do right now. So when we come up and sing, you can also come up and gather the, the food, the meal. cups in it. And uh, we'll come up and take it uh, back to your seat and then we'll share all at once. So let's sing together. Thank you.
spiritually healthy week doesn't start by looking inside yourself. It starts right here. It starts by looking outside of yourself at what Jesus has done for you. So it's just a good reminder that most of your disappointments, your problems, your frustrations, your concerns, your worries that come from inside, we're not going to find the ultimate help down there. That we're going to find it in Christ and in what He has done and in glorifying Him and walking according to His way. So 1 Corinthians 11, verse 23. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when He was betrayed, took bread. And when He had given thanks, He broke it and said, This is My body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of Me. In the same way also He took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in My blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of Me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. Well, amen. Let me sing one more song. Close. Share victory in Jesus.
of the day and have a wonderful 4th of July. You're dismissed.